Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we conclude our series giving examination over the earliest of the church's creeds. The Apostles' Creed showed us the historicity of Jesus' life and death, and that God is worshipped as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed helped clarify the nature of Jesus' divinity, and today we look at the Athanasian Creed. As the church seeks to clarify the troublesome doctrine of the Trinity, recognizing the unity and diversity contained within the complexity of our God. Thanks for listening. The Trinity. We have been over um, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, We've been over the Nicene Creed. And today we've come to the final installment here in this series on the creeds. And I want to... um, I want to encourage you that I've heard a lot of feedback from some of you who said, I'm so glad we're doing this study. Uh, You're the type of person who has heard of the creeds for a good measure of your life, but you've never known where they've come from. And I would suspect that for as many people who say, I'm so glad we're doing this uh, study, that there's equally as many who said, are we still doing this study? Um, And I just want to warn those folks, uh, today is going to be uh, probably the hardest one of all. We're going to have a lot of big words again, um, and then it's even more history. But I want to encourage you to go with us through it, because when we talk about how we understand God, we need to make sure we get it right. It's the same difference between choosing the wrong white granular ingredient to put in your uh, pie or your cookies, uh, that it will lead to completely different results if you get this wrong. It's worth taking the time. It's worth the energy to study through. Um, the Athanasian Creed was written in the 5th and 6th centuries. It's, um, it's given the name to Athanasius. We studied him last week with the Nicene Creed. You remember the issue at the time was there was a heretic named Arius, and Arius had this little slogan. Do you remember what the saying was? There was a time when he was not. Arius believed that uh, Jesus was not God eternal, uh, but that Jesus was a creature. And if Jesus is a creature, throughout the study we can see uh, not only is he incapable of being a a proper substitute uh, for our sins, but he is incapable of offering um, the propitiation or the payment due God for our sins. Jesus has to be God and he has to be man. Well, as the church worked its way through understanding these things, and let me just make a little side note here. The church is not inventing these things. You need to lock that down. Um, You will have uh, the popular cable TV shows. Don't watch the History Channel, first of all. You watch the History Channel. What they will say is that the church came up with these ideas. They invented these ideas, and nothing could be further from the truth. From the very beginning, those followers of Jesus Christ who worship God properly, worshiping him, you might remember this, Jesus' words uh, to the uh, the, uh, woman in Samaria is that, my followers will worship God in spirit and in, yeah, Irene let us know, right? Spirit and in truth. And to worship God in truth from the very beginning was to glorify Jesus as divine. From the beginning. It wasn't until you had false teachings coming into the church that the church had to come up with these creeds. So everybody make sure we lock that down. This wasn't something that was invented. This was from the very beginning, but it has to become clarified later because of false teachings. And so maybe you will recall, even back to our earliest study, uh, what does the word creed 
mean I believe. That's what it means. It means I or it comes from the verb that means I believe. Um, the creeds were given to the church to help define what a Christian is, and they are held by Christians. And they were written both to preserve the faith and to protect the faith from false teachings. And so once more, as we are now going to look at this final ecumenical creed, um, we will have to examine false teachers and false teachings. So the very first one is going to be a false teacher named Sibelius. Sibelius actually comes a little bit earlier than even the time of Nicaea, but he introduces a heresy based upon his desire to hold to Jesus's divinity. He knows the word of God. He knows the understanding of the worship of the earliest church. We worship Jesus as divine. And so Sibelius rightly taught a couple of things. He taught that there is, in fact, only one God. Amen to that. That's what we hold to. That, that was one of our very first readings from Deuteronomy, uh, the creed for the Jewish people, that they would say every morning prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. So right in line with monotheism here to see the fulfillment of the promises of Judaism, we as Christians hold this same truth. Sibelius taught this. That's correct. There is only one God. Additionally, Sibelius taught that Jesus is also fully God. Well, that's great too. I mean, so far, we're right on track. I mean, I've got no problem with this. However, the manner in which Jesus is God is where the error creeps in. And you might understand this. It's a hard thing to conceive and understand what the Trinity is and what it means and how it has influence and circumstance in our lives. Um, Jesus is fully God and there is only one God. So how does that work? And here was the problem that Sibelius taught. He wrongly taught that God is, is one in being, but he's also only one in person. And this becomes a heresy that I, I will have up here in, in a moment called modalism. That's the heresy. It's called modalism. And the, the root there meaning mode. So the way that he understood the one God and Jesus being fully God is simply this. God manifests himself in different modes. So remember, by the way, this is a false teaching. Uh, you, you might actually, uh, I, I would be willing to bet that there are some in here who are like, geez, I thought that was right. I thought that's what it was. Uh, hopefully we clear that up this morning. Um, but uh, what he taught was in the Old Testament, uh, God manifests himself as God the Father. In the New Testament time, God manifests himself as Jesus, God's son. And then in the New Testament era, after the ascension of Jesus, now God is manifest as who? The Holy Spirit. Um, but when God is the Holy Spirit, he's not the son. And when God is the son, he's not the father or the Holy Spirit. And when God's the father, he's not the son or the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's this idea that God comes in as different modes. And so there was, a, there was a teaching that flew out of this uh, that he ascribed to called patripassism. Patripassionism. Um, I will probably pronounce that wrong. Uh, patripassism is this idea. Uh, you might think your Latin, how's everybody's Latin? What does patri mean in Latin? Father, Father right? Uh, passion here representing the suffering on the cross. So patripassism is the idea that who is suffering on the cross? God the 
Father. So this was the teaching. They would say that as Jesus died on the cross, as Jesus suffered on the cross, it was actually the Father who was dying on the cross. It was actually the Father who was suffering on the cross. This is a problem. Uh, In fact, not only a problem just for the church and how they understand things, it's contradictory to what Scripture teaches. So Jesus will refer to God as his Father. Uh, Jesus, in fact, will pray in the garden to whom? The Father. So if modalism is true, who is Jesus praying to? Uh, By the way, I'll let you know, if you ever get a Jehovah's Witness to knock on your door, these are the questions that they will pose to you. If you want to hold to the doctrine of the Trinity, they will ask you these questions. Well, if, if Jesus was in the garden praying to the Father, wasn't he praying to himself? Doesn't that, doesn't that seem confusing? Why would he pray to himself? Because they're holding that God is one. And if Jesus is God, how does that, how does that possibly make sense? Their heresy goes a little bit different in demoting Jesus uh, rather than modalism. Uh, but this is the problem, is that they only see God as one in person. And that was the heresy that Sibelius brought out. A couple of their false teachings. One we've already looked at, modalism. The problem with modalism is that there is one God and he is only one person. Manifests differently throughout time. Um, another false teaching that shows up here is called tritheism. And the mistake within tritheism is not the problem of um, uh three persons, now you actually end up having three gods. Uh, Jesus is a separate God. Holy Spirit is a separate God. Uh, and the Father is a separate God. We, uh, and Christians that held to this, uh, you might say, isn't that called polytheism? Uh, they're still trying to hold to unity within them, but they so have separated the members of the Godhead that they effectively turn them into their own little deities, their own little gods. So that would be the problem of multiplying the person I'm sorry, multiplying the being. Um, So we know that God is one in being and he's three in person. Uh, I can see I got the wheels turning on you right now here. Everybody's trying to think through these terms. Let's say that together. I I want you to say he's one in being and three in person. Let's say it together. Ready? One in being, three in person. that, that's the most succinct way that we can understand the Orthodox teaching here of the Trinity. Beyond these two, the only other option for you if you're going to hold to God being unified and having diversity is to hold to what's called partialism. And this is the idea that God the Father is kind of the main God and that Jesus and the Spirit sort of just come from him. That they're, they're God, but they're like this lesser form of God. And so there's still this idea of unity, but they're not the source Uh, This would be where you would find heresies within Arianism, even Jehovah Witnesses today. Uh, That's that's essentially the the version of these false teachings that we would uh, have to look at. So what does the church do in response to this? The church says the correction that we need to make is exactly in line with these false teachings. Number one, first of all, God is one in being. And he's three in person. And those persons are co-equal. That's it. That hopefully seems simple enough to you. It's when you start to try to push those together that your brain kind of wrinkles a little bit. And this just simply off to the side, I would say, I'd say that's good evidence that you're not God. I think if you were God, you would get this locked down and make perfect sense to you. And the fact that we understand the Trinity as a mystery and simply have to confess it to be true proves that God's ways are higher than our ways. 
and that he subsists in a manner of complexity that's above his creature's ability to fully comprehend. Not that you can't attain it by saying, no, I hold to it. I believe it firmly. It is the grounding of my faith that we worship uh, God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, that we hold to that. Uh, But if we really pressed ourselves hard enough to understand it, even my smartest professors in seminary said, we confess it. We believe it to be a mystery. We know it's true, but the full complexity of how that works out is very hard for the human mind to, to wrap, its, uh, wrap its mind around. So let's talk for a minute here about how we have messed this up today. Um, you'll have a lot of people who will offer examples of the Trinity, right? Uh, they will say, oh, the Trinity is like water, that can be a solid and a liquid and a gas. Have you heard that? No. Or, or how about this one? People will say uh, the Trinity is like an egg in that it has a shell and it has a yolk. I picked yolk because what do you call the other part? The white. Thank you. It has the, is it just called the white? Egg white. I was really rocking there for a minute until I forgot what you call it. The shell, the egg white, and the yolk. And all together, it makes up uh, one egg. Um, That is actually the heresy of uh, partialism. Uh, Partialism is the idea that God is composed in these segments that together make a whole. And if I remove one part, now I've removed one third of uh, the Godhead. And if I remove another part, now I've removed another part of the Godhead. And so God the Father is one-third God, and God the Son is one-third God, and God the Spirit is one-third God. Uh, That's partialism. Um, The other way I've heard this represented is that of like an apple. Um, Have you heard that one before? Like the skin of an apple, the core of an apple, and the white part of an apple. Some people have used that to refer uh, to the Trinity. Or the one that was handed down um, in church history, they would use the sun as the example. This is what Arius would say. The Trinity is like the sun in that you have the, the celestial star itself. You have the, the rays of light and then you have the heat that you feel. Um, all of those are descriptions wrong of the Trinity because what they're doing is they're describing partialism. Um, the sun would be the source that produces the rays, that produces the heat, um, but they're not co-subsisting together. Um, because of this, we need to be careful. Um, we read a passage here, uh, Lane read it for us, out of Matthew. Um, if, you were to, if I were to quiz you, give me the best passage on the Trinity. I bet most of you might say, well, it's, it's what we read, Matthew 28, right? Uh, go make disciples by baptizing them in the name of? And the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, there you go. Right? Three together. That's where we turn to find it. Um, If you were to find Matthew and Jesus' words recorded differently, in fact, if Jesus had said, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if he left out the definite article before those, you'd end up with partialism. The idea that the name itself is composed of these three who each make up just a third of the Godhead. Uh, This, in fact, is not how it is written, though. Let's look at another bad example. So uh, for tritheism, you would have, uh, I heard this once, that uh, the Trinity is like a pitchfork with three prongs, right? So you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and together it makes one pitchfork. Well, unfortunately, that's actually teaching tritheism in showing this unnecessary separation between the Godhead. 
Um, one other one that I've heard similar to that is the idea of a three-leaf clover. Have, have you ever seen that before? The, the idea that each clover is represented of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, a problem with this, why it turns into tritheism, is because um, what if I tore off one of the cloves of the clover? What if I took off a part? I would now no longer have God, or I would end up having a little piece of God over here and two pieces of God over here. That's called tritheism. And so the way that this would get represented, if that were true, is we would have um, in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you ever noticed that before. Um, You might want to turn to Matthew 28. You, You might have thought, doesn't it say names? And it doesn't. It says three persons with the singular noun name in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say in the names. If, if, if God were to exist as a tritheism, this is what it should say. It should say in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But, but that's not what it says. All right, one last example, and this is the one that uh, I mentioned briefly before. Uh, modalism. Um, if you recall the illustration uh, of uh, the Holy uh, or the uh, Trinity is like water in that it can be found as a solid, liquid, and gas. That's actually modalism uh, because there is no single molecule that itself can exist at the same time as solid, liquid, and gas. Each molecule is either a solid or a liquid or a gas, and that would be modalism. The idea that God is either Father or Son or the Holy Spirit and not all three co-sustaining together. Um, the other illustration that I have heard, and I've actually used this one, uh, unfortunately, is that the Trinity is like um, a man who could be a, a dad and a husband and a brother, right? I actually, I fit that. I'm a dad and I'm a husband and I'm a brother, <clears throat> but I am not all those same things to those same people. And so this is, again, an example of modalism. Um, if... If God were to be understood as modalism, as singular in being and singular in person, well, then the verse should read, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. But again, that's not what the text says. In fact, what Jesus offers to us and what we read this morning is that it says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God is one in being and three in person. Let's say it together. God is one in being and three in person. That's right. All right. So uh, if I could, I told you this was going to be an intellectually stimulating service, right? You already still? If I could show you here uh, by example, how if we let go of any one of these three, the church's response, again, is that God is one in being, three in person, and they are co-equal. If you lose any one of those, you'll end up with one of these heresies. For example, if we were to take being out of the picture, God's singularness, the unity of his being, what you end up with is tritheism, right? You, you have three persons, and they're co-equal. And so no longer is there one being, now you end up with three. Or if, for example, we were to take away the three persons... Now we just have one being that's co-equal. You end up with modalism. 
That was Sibelius's heresy, right? So if it's just one being and he's co-equal in his representation, well, that means he shows up here this way, and then he doesn't exist like that anymore, but he shows up this way and changes back and forth. And instead, if we put three persons back and we remove the equality between the three, which one will we end up with for those who are paying close attention? We'll end up with partialism in that now the Son and the Spirit are just emanations from the great, true, single God, the Father, because we're trying to hold to his one being. But you got three persons in there somehow. And so what we must do is we must hold to the orthodox teaching of the church. I want to remind you, this is what the church from its beginning understood and worshipped. But it wasn't until false teaching showed up that it had to really get this explained out into a creed. Now, I knew that there was somebody this morning who was going to say, Pastor, could you keep going and give us more examples? And for that person, yes, I can. So here we go. Couple more uh, false teachings. Um, as the church tried to understand the nature of Jesus within unity as a person co-equal with God, they also really stumbled over this. So four more false teachings. Adoptionism, Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, Eutychianism. Woo! That's, worth a, that's worth a yawn right there. Thank you, Bruce. Woo! Let's go. I love it too. By the way, this is about my favorite subject uh, when I was in school was church history. All right, here you go. The first one, adoptionism is the overemphasis upon Jesus' humanity. This, is, this was the teaching. <clears throat> Jesus is born from Mary. He shows up on earth. And then through his righteous living, God at his baptism endows him with the spirit of God. So they are going to claim Jesus is fully God, but only at his baptism. And that's the place where Jesus becomes adopted. And what that is, even though they're trying to hold to the deity of Jesus, it's an overemphasis on his humanity. You're not letting those two pull in tension properly with one another. So if we swing the pendulum the other way, you'll end up with Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism is the overemphasis of Jesus's divinity. Oh, when I learned this, uh, we called it God in a bod. <laughs> God in a bod. Uh, here's the idea, is that you have Jesus in his humanity, but like um, you do with watermelon, God took a, a, a melon baller or a melon scooper and scooped out of Jesus his human will, and he scooped out of Jesus his human emotions, and he scooped out of Jesus his human spirit, and instead he put the Spirit of God in him that way. Because we want to emphasize the spiritual nature of Jesus. And so, essentially, it's God just in a bod. That's the idea of Apollinarianism. It's an overemphasis upon his deity at the expense of the humanity. And so now Jesus only has a divine mind and a divine emotion and a divine will. And, uh, and we even know from the scriptures that's not true, right? We see Jesus getting hungry. We see Jesus thirsty. We see Jesus weeping, right? We see his humanity on display. But Apollinarianism is another heresy that uh, underemphasizes the humanity in effort to overemphasize or hold to the deity. So that's not correct either. Nestorianism, and uh, Nestorius was a teacher who wrongly gets this attributed to him. He didn't himself believe it, but... <laughs> Apparently, we just still decide to call it that. Um, this is a schizophrenic Jesus. Um, what they've tried to do is they've tried to hold to the, uh, the dual nature. So Jesus has a divine nature and a human nature. But what, they ended up do, what this teaching ended up doing was actually it separates those natures so much that now he's almost two persons. 
And so they'll look into the New Testament and they'll say, Ah, oh, see when Jesus is hungry, that's when he's acting in his human nature. Oh, when Jesus speaks to the wind and the way, be still. Because that's what he sounds like, right? Be still. <laughs> now he's acting in his divine nature. And so Jesus flip-flops his whole life between these two. Um, the divine and the human. The divine and the human. That was how Nestorius tried to... Um, not Nestorius, but his followers tried to solve this problem. And what you end up with is, is a dual personality within Jesus's, what ought to be a single person. Only one more Eutychianism tried to fix that by um, making it one person and one nature. And so what he did is he took uh, the divine nature that's there, right? Fully God. Amen. Right? You still with me? Fully God. And then he took the fully man and he put them both in a blender and pushed high. Blended them right up. And instead of making the God-man, he made the God-man. He just, just squished them together. And so now Jesus is not the same as being divine, nor is he the same as being human. He's like an amalgam of the two. He's like this mixed up. It's like when my daughter puts the green and the red Play-Doh together and makes brown Play-Doh. Anybody else have grandkids? Yeah. Uh, and, and their originals are gone. They're, they're dissolved into this new being. And so what they did is they divorced the nature to hold to the singular of the person. Whew. Are we almost there? Here we go. One more step to go. How does the church respond to this? And the church is teaching, I'm just going to get, again, I could go a lot longer on all this, but just one word. It's called the hypostatic union. Um, hypo and, and stasis, uh, meaning that the two natures stand together. That the natures of Jesus stand united next to one another. Not so that Jesus is schizophrenic in his understanding, but he's singular in his person, but he's dual in his nature. It's the teaching called the hypostatic union. Union. Now, oh, we've got all this false teaching going on. Good thing there's no false teaching today, right? Everybody good with that? No. We, we, we could use some good old-fashioned creeds today, amen? In our world today, we could use a return to say, we ought to pay attention to what these mean. And so the church's response was the Athanasian Creed. Now, I'm going to read through the creed for you. I didn't print it off because... Uh, well, this is how long it is. It's, it's two, two very long pages. So I, I'm going to read through it, and I would love it if you could do your best to try to track through the ideas we've already shared that you could see where they find representation in the creed. You likely could memorize and have memorized the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of... Very good. And you likely could even memorize the Nicene Creed or even parts of it, right? God from God, light from... True God from begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. Right? We've heard that before, right? I'm willing to bet you haven't memorized the Athanasian Creed, but I'm, I'm wanting you to pay close attention here as we read it this morning. Everybody ready? Say ready if you're ready. All right, here we go. Here it is. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Time out. What's Catholic mean? You guys remember that one? Good, universal, right? From kata and hola, so according to the whole. That's what it means. Um, anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. So what, what's on the line here? It's not just does the pie taste salty. It's actually, it's actually more severe than that, right? We're talking about the foundation of our faith. 
Now this is the Catholic faith. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. Neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another. And that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory, equal. Their majesty, co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has. And the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. Uh, do you see how very clear they're having to be here? I mean, it's almost like, spell it out for me a little more, would you? I mean, just trying to be very clear, such that the church cannot take this into error. And yet, there are not three eternal beings, but there is one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreateds or immeasurable things, but there is one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighty beings, but one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, but there is one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords, but there is one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually, both as God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made, nor created, nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There's one Son, not three sons. There's one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything... As was said earlier, we must worship their trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the trinity. But it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. That he is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time, completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards to divinity, less than the Father as regards to humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. Do you remember we looked at that? 
Right? The word here refers to the grave. We'll be careful with that. More questions you can ask me. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the, right, at the Father's right hand. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting for their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter to eternal life, and those who have done evil will enter into eternal fire. Rosanna, just to... Is she in here? Just to, uh, just to verify what you were saying, we want to we recognize this doesn't mean if you're good, you go to heaven. That's not what this means. This means that the goodness that comes from your works is due to the Spirit indwelling you. I just want to make sure we're clear on that. Rosanna was teaching was spot on this morning. This is not reversing that. It may, may need a little clarity that we don't get confused. Um, this is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. We made it. We made it. Now, you have to memorize that for next Sunday. (laughs) Is it not beautiful, though? Is it not so clear for what the church was wrestling with that they had to say, look, you can't fall into the ditch on this side, claiming that there are not three persons. And you can't fall into the ditch over on this side saying, well, there's three gods then. So how do you hold to the middle ground on this? And it's done so through a confession. Within the mystery and the complexity of God, this is who he is, and this is what we must hold to. Now, what I'd like to do just in the remainder of our time is show you from God's word how we know this to be true. The passage I really wanted to spend time was out of 1 Peter. Um, I have it up here. I wonder if you can identify the working and the the unity and the diversity within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Did you spot it? There they are. It's not, not too hard to see, right? Here's the easy one that we went through already, right? This one's pretty easy to spot too, right? Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you think that those are the only two, Boy, you would know the scriptures continually show God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. So here's a few bonus ones for you this morning. Acts 20. Keep, see if you can spot it. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Did you spot him in there? The Spirit, God the Father, and the blood that came from God the Son. First, 2 Corinthians 13, this is an easy one. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There they are. Uh, Ephesians 4, see if you spot them here. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. And he continues on from there. Did you see the Trinity show up? A couple more. Hebrews 9, Uh, this one I don't actually have it uh, in blue, so you'll have to just spot it. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Did you spot him? Blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, unblemished to God. One more, in Jude, verse 20 and 21, But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the spirit, Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. And there are many more that I could have chosen. Just just a smattering here that you can see it's true. We must hold to this. I don't really understand it fully, but I know there's ways of saying it wrong. Don't tell anyone anymore that God is an egg. 
Please. All right, and be very careful if you say he's like water. All right, be very careful with that. In fact, let me tease you here a little bit. I actually do think I've got a really, really good analogy for what the dual nature of Jesus and the Trinity is like. But you're going to have to come to Bible study on Wednesday to find out. What that is. All right. So here's my application. Very briefly, I want to uh, encourage you. Worship God in Trinity in Trinity in unity. This is why we sang the songs that we sang this morning. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Spirit. Three in one. And in order to do this, I'll offer to you uh, very briefly three ways. First of all, seek to glorify God the Father. Do this through obeying the Son, and do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the words I have there bolded might seem like the ones to pay attention to. to. Uh, however, it's actually these prepositions. That when we understand the Trinity, we understand that everything is directed to the Father. And so, I might just simply encourage you with prayer. Do you remember how Jesus answers the disciples when they say, teach us to pray, right? And he says, when you pray... Pray like this, our, so who do you pray to? You pray to God the Father. Uh, We are only given, the book of Hebrews helps us understand, we are only given access to God through the work of Jesus Christ. And so when we pray, we pray because Jesus made a way. So we pray to the Father, we pray through the Son, And then uh, Romans chapter 8 teaches us that sometimes we don't even know what to pray, but the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses with groans that words cannot express. So when we pray, we pray by the power of the Spirit. And we know this from other sermons that you've heard. When you ask anything in my name, it will be given to you according to my will. Um, That when we pray, we can't pray according to our will. Uh, Dear Lord, help Aaron Rodgers to play better, right? Uh, Who knows if that's true or not? Nobody knows. Um, That would be according to my will. Um, But when we pray, we must pray by the Spirit. Everybody with me? Say amen if you're with me. Let's pray this morning.